0: You probably know that the late Tim Russert was the longest serving host of NBC's Meet the Press, where he hosted that weekly show from 1991 to 2008. His son, Luke, our guest today alongside one of Faith Angle's longtime advisors and friends, Carl Cannon of Real Clear Politics, says that when his father died, in a sense, an era of journalism also died. The analogy Luke uses is that my dad played basketball in the days before there was a three-point line. Tim Russert was at his core and ideas man. For five years in the late 70s and early 1980s, he served as chief of staff to New York Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan. He loved politics and eventually loved his work as a journalist, but at his core he loved policy and holding politicians to account with the kind of sunlight that good journalism brings, making sense of things. But as you'll hear them discuss today, Luke and Carl both think journalism has itself changed, even in 15 short years. Luke's father and Carl, too, grew up in the era of Walter Cronkite and the big three, Peter Jennings, Dan Rather, and Tom Brokaw. Journalism today has splintered into a thousand outlets with 24-hour coverage, gotcha questions, advocacy soapboxes, and too much Twitter infighting. In an age of online advertising, a lot of local outlets can't even afford to staff school board meetings or cover other local dynamics. The industry's become more performative, more everywhere, more ideological, more everything all the time. For his part, Luke worked as a political journalist for eight years after his dad's death, before in October of 2016 taking a deep breath and choosing to walk away. Initially on a six month trip that turned into a three year Big Think reflective journey to over 65 countries. As you'll hear, the season included religious encounter too. Tom Brokaw announced to the nation on June 13th, 2008 that Luke's father had died of a heart attack shortly after recording several Meet the Press voiceovers for that week's program. Luke was 22 years old that day. Today, just over 15 years later, Luke is the author of a New York Times bestselling book, Look For Me There, Grieving My Father and Finding Myself. His mom, Maureen Orth, is also a longtime journalist at Vanity Fair, and they've become closer since Tim's death. If Luke's story and career is still unfolding, the book he describes today offers vulnerability, wisdom, and beauty. One last note about this week's host, Carl Cannon doesn't mention that he too is the son of a legendary journalist, Lou Cannon, a lifelong journalist and the author of eight books. Carl is executive editor and longtime D.C. bureau chief for Real Clear Politics, the winner of the Gerald Ford and Aldo Beckman Prizes for exceptional White House coverage, and the past president of the White House Correspondents Association. Enjoy the conversation.
1: Luke, I'm a print guy. Normally, when a TV guy writes a book and it's this well-written, I'll be honest, it irritates me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. But this did not irritate me. This book inspired me. Look, our listeners, you got to go buy this book, so then you'll know. There are going to be spoiler alerts, Josh. It's fine. There's going to be some spoilers, but you know what? The, the book's worth it anyway. What I want to start with is, I mean, the title is, Look for me there, which is a line that your dad used for you one time when you got lost at the ballpark in Camden Yards, if I recall. That's right. And then the subtitle is "Grieving My Father, Finding Myself" by Luke Russert. It's a perfect title. Thank you. But one of the great surprises in the book is it's also about your mother. Yeah, she's as much a person, more so. She's still alive. She accompanied on to Argentina Mm -hmm. and part of the trip. And it reminds me, and it reminds our listeners, you grew up in the family business. Yeah, Not just your dad, your mom, too. She's mm-hmm. a writer. Maybe that's why you're such a good writer. <laughs> he's the broadcast star. I grew up in the family business. I yeah. was at the White House Correspondents Theater one time. Uh, I was the president of the, of the association. I was sitting next to George W. Bush. He'd met my family. And I said, "Well, and he's an oldest son. I'm an only son. You're an o- oldest son. You're an only son. Yeah, But- I said, well, you grew up in the family business. <laughs> and he thought about it. And I said, you went into the family business. He said, well, so did you. <laughs> uh, and, you know, we, we, in these day days, we, Luke, we talk about privilege and stuff. But, I mean, hell, it's an advantage. You had these two people who really saw the world and helped guide you. And so I wanted to ask you, at what point did you realize you were writing about your mom as much as your dad?
2: Well, that's a very good question. And I think what's so interesting about the book is that it's very organic. And it was born out of these journals that I had taken while after I left NBC and I started traveling. And when I went back and I started to go through these journals and sort of write out my thoughts... I came to the realization that my mother was this very complex character that I did not truly understand until I actually left and went and traveled. And the reason why is that when she was a very young woman in her early 20s, she grew up in Oakland area, Bay Area of uh, California. She grew up in a very strict Catholic family, and she desperately wanted to sort of get out on her own. And her dad was very strict and said no. And then she said, well, what if I join the Peace Corps? And, of course, he's someone who is very altruistic. So he goes, well, if you join the Peace Corps, you can go out and leave. (laughs) So she did. And when she went to the Peace Corps in Colombia in the early 60s, very machismo culture there, women were very dismissed, if anything else, create children and cook. That was really it. So she went in there and was telling all these Colombian men, we have to build a school, you have to move rocks out the road, basically whipping them into shape and saying this and that. And what I came to realize is that that spirit, that tenacity that she used her entire career as a journalist, as a writer, breaking glass ceilings, but also this sort of fearlessness, this drive, this push to, I not only have to prove myself, but I have to be strong and tough. It was something that for many years, especially as a young man, I didn't really understand. It was always, mom, why are you on my case so much? (laughs) Right. And I write in the book, my dad was more of the good cop to my mom's bad cop. My dad was more sort of the football coach that was like, all right, here's what you did wrong. Here's what you can do right. Like, whereas my mom was the football coach that was, Yeah, you scored two touchdowns, but you should have had three touchdowns. You really should have. And you never should have let them score, by the way. And you could have been so much better. And it wasn't until I traveled with her and I saw how she was fearless in a country like Paraguay or a country like Uruguay or Argentina, where she would just throw herself into these markets where she would talk to people on the street very forcefully. And I was like, oh, my goodness. This is what really made her tick. This is what gave her success was this fearlessness, this tenacity. And she was just trying to toughen me up as I was a kid. She saw this kid born into privilege. Both my parents came from working class backgrounds. I was the first person to have the luxuries in the family. And she saw that and honed under me and said, OK, I'm going to make you tough. And when I came to realize that it was also a realization of this is something that's very important. You see your parents as mortals. You see them who they are independent of that role of mom or independent of the role of dad. And to be honest with you, once that happened, it really improved our relationship because no longer was I full of resentment as I was as a young man saying, oh, my gosh, this woman just doesn't let go of me. She just won't stop. It's always you never do enough. It goes. I see it now. That was the fuel that got her out of her house and her strict family, and allowed her to succeed in life. Well, so man, it was a really interesting growth
1: moment. And there's a great scene in there. Josh has read the book too, where you're in in Buenos Aires, and she wants to see. She says, "Let's go see Eva Peron." Yeah. And there's that slogan on it. You know, you woman has to to accomplish something that requires some fanaticism mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. in modern American politics, let alone what's happening in Israel. I mean, fanaticism is something you're yeah. deeply suspicious of and rightfully so. Absolutely. But in that context, your mom's seeing it as, as a feminist, as a woman born in at a time when women had to be stronger. So
2: and, and it's So fascinating because it's not that long ago. And you know, it's, it's interesting because my mom was, was a little bit older when she had me and she would tell me these stories about coming out of college. Most of the women in her class, it was, right, you go be a nurse or you go be a teacher and that was really, or you go be a mom. And that was really it. And anything else was considered radical. And there's an appreciation I have for that more, way more so than I was younger. Well, no doubt, my mom
1: was born in San Francisco, where I'm also born. She's accepted to Cal. At a time when not many women were going that well, she gets pregnant with me. Well, then she can't go to Cal. Yeah. Imagine this now. It's, a mar- this it's remarkable. Age, now they'd give you a scholarship. Yeah. <laughs> pregnant? Come on. And that's no. where
2: my mom went. So yeah.
0: She'd say, Go Bears. Yeah. <laughs> but it's also a book about your dad. And he, you know, on national stage, died at the age of 58. And yeah. it felt like in the book, and then some other things you've written, other places, the sort of shaping reality, uh, the shaping power of fathers and sons is deep with you. And we hear that talked about in the context of 9/11. We hear that talked about in the context of a lot of things in terms of foreign policy. Fathers and sons is a unique role. Can you tell us a little bit about? You don't talk about it quite as much while you're traveling. And as I understand it, preceded what you call the sort of real grieving moment in yeah. your grandmother's kitchen in, in San Francisco. But tell us a little bit about growing up as a son of Tim Russert you know, oh, yeah. and to the, to the field of journalism.
2: Well, it was a very fascinating childhood. I like to talk about how at the family dinner table, there was no room to hide. My mom and dad <laughs> would pepper me with questions about my reactions to national affairs at a very young age. We would have the nightly news on. Dad would come home from work. And there were certainly questions about, you know, what's going on in school and what's going on in your life and how are your sports. But there was also, did you see what Newt Gingrich said about the budget shutdown yeah, the budget showdown and the government shutdown, et cetera? Did you see what's happening in Kosovo? Or did you see what's happening in the war in Iraq, et cetera? So there is certainly a premium put on being well-informed and being civically minded and engaged for sure. But what was really interesting with my father is that for someone who was as busy as he was, he always made sure that he had time. And that was really an incredible gift that I was not as conscious of it living in the moment. But thankfully, I realized when I got to college and I was exposed to even more people, especially people who had very hardworking dads. And they just, you know, I grew up hardly seeing my dad. I said, Well, that's crazy. And they go, We must have been the same for years. Said, no, my dad was around all the time. He came to all my games. He helped me with schoolwork. He was very much involved in my life. And that is something I'm just so incredibly thankful for. And I think, which, you know, he wrote in his book, Big Russ and Me, about my grandfather, who was an Irish Catholic from South Buffalo, a garbage man who didn't necessarily have the time because he worked two jobs along with newspaper delivery. But he always made sure my father knew that he cared and he loved him. And my dad sort of took that to the next level is I'm going to make sure that you know that I love you and I care for you, but I'm also going to give you that time. So that was incredible. The other thing that it was very interesting growing up was my father was very even keel. And I look back at those days because I think now we talked about a little fanaticism earlier there seemed to be this just culture where things swing so fast and there's like, okay, there's a problem and then there's a correction and then there's an overcorrection, right? And one of the things that I always remember about my father, which was very helpful growing up is that. He never got too high. He never got too low. It was really this idea of, you know, life's a baseball game. There's plenty of at-bats. You're going to hit a Grand Slam some days. You're going to strike out other days. But make sure your average is good and you'll be okay, right? And I think that was something that I've carried with me for a long time, is sort of take a pause, take a breath, and don't get so wrapped up. And that was something that he really was a big believer in for sure.
1: Luke, that attitude imbued his journalism too. He, you know, I remember you open. Early in the book, you know, the scene when you find out, it's just devastating. And yeah. even today, I'm sure it's a painful thing. But all across the city, people, I, I'd only met your dad a couple of times, people who didn't even know him, journalists, it was a blow. Yeah. And he was considered the standard. And not, not the only one. These people, Tom Brokaw, mm-hmm. you know, Woodward, whoever your people are that you look to. But he was really one of the greats. And one of the things that made him great, in my opinion in my views, was kind of what you're talking about now. He was not only even-keeled, he was Mm nonpartisan. And he asked tough questions of both sides, but he could do it without rancor. He could do it without anger. He could do it without posturing or Mm -hmm. making himself the story. And I look around, I don't know what your views on this. I want to know your views on this. I see less and less of that in
2: journalism, especially broadcast journalism.
1: I think think one of the
2: reasons why he's so revered now is, you know, it's 15 years after his passing. And his name comes up. I mean, it still trends on Twitter every now and then, which is amazing because he was you – know, Twitter had just come out when he passed away. And I think about that. Why is he so revered all these years later? I've been fortunate to meet young kids who may have been five or six when he was on air. And their woods. Well, I remember him on uh, Sunday morning having breakfast with my family. So how the hell do you remember him, right? And what I've come to realize, I think for a lot of people, his death really marked the end of that era – of more straightforward, gentler journalism. And what I mean by that is the sort of news in the morning, news in the evening, cable during the day, and real print newspapers that people took real pride in and read front to back. And when he passed away, it seemed that everything sort of started swaying more digital. Opinion became more involved, and advocacy became more part of a part of it, and the format changed. And I always say, I said, I think to some degree, if to use a sports metaphor, I almost feel like pre-digital. My father played before the three-point line. It's a different game now. And I think what's most disappointing to me, and people say, well, why is it the way it is? Why is it the way it is? I go, there's one thing that I've noticed that I think would make a huge difference. If you watch the Sunday shows now and you watch other programs, there's this emphasis put on speed and graphics and boom, 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 boom. And what my father did was he would have these 24, 28, 32-minute segments that were almost like depositions, right, or cross-examinations, whatever you want to call it. And it was very simple. It was, you said this, here's the graphic. Why is there a change in your position? Can you defend your position? And sometimes he would just stick to one question that the politician wasn't answering it or get to the point where it was obvious the politician was not going to answer it. And the audience was smart enough to realize, this guy's a phony. This lady is not going to answer it, right? right? And I think what we've gotten away from is that format. Which is problematic because now the politicians, they go to these professional training schools (laughs) and they're taught how to run out the clock. Right. Right. right? So just sort of regurgitate point point after point after point after point. And they're not so much speaking to the middle anymore they're very much speaking to their base because I think the idea now is almost like a parliamentary democracy, right? Turn out as many of your people as you can in the middle, whatever. And that's sad because it never was like that for quite a long time. So it's yeah. striking that the smartphone is at the heart of that. Mm-hmm. My, my
0: first job when I was in grad school was at the Shorenstein Center on yeah. the press, politics, stand. And the whole idea was there's an interplay, a nexus between journalism and what actually happens in the country. For sure. And we ought to spend more time thinking about that. But it almost feels like we're playing that in a way that, and I too think this, I think the
2: smartphones that. and the apps and all that—it just it moves at a pace. It's way too quick. The technology we have not kept up with the technology. The other thing is, I think there's a certain citizen journalism component of it that is good, but on the other hand, there's no more gatekeepers. And if you look at that, that's increasingly problematic because someone like Carl is way more of an effective gatekeeper than some guy who's just you know, riding the metro right now. <laughs> but now they're put on the same pedestal. The guy Nichols writes about the end of expertise. You know, I think that's a serious, serious problem that you see often now.
1: Yeah, what, what do we do to get it back? You don't want to be a Luddite. You want
2: right. You literally don't
1: want to turn back the clock because you can't. But no,
2: but I, I You know, it's a good question. I think journalism. it's one of these things where you have the technology is changing at such a clip, especially now with AI. Mm. And we have to sort of figure out all right, is there a place to go where people can say, I trust this news source or I trust this information? I do a lot of stuff with my local high school, helping them on their board. And chat GPI is a huge issue now in schools. And the interesting thing. Is their approach, you know, I went to St. Albans, what they've taken now is basically said, we're going to go back to old school. So we're going to have oral presentations that you're graded on. We're going to be grading you on discussion. We're going to do in-room essays that are handwritten that you don't have access to the computer to. You know, you don't want to be a Luddite, but maybe there's something there, which is that right, Luke, when, you know, you, when we you, put out the scrolls <laughs> in the town center. When you figure out how we do that to
1: journalism, you, <laughs> right you know,
2: we'll form the media company we'll do it.
1: We're talking with Luke Russert, son of Tim Russert, about his book Look For Me There, Grieving My Father, Finding Myself. Can we go to some of these countries now, Josh? Please please. without
0: a smartphone, preferably. Yeah, right. But
1: you know at at the Epcot Center in Disneyland, they have the countries like England and then there's a pub and then you go around the world. Well let's do a little of that. (laughs) All right. Let's start in no particular order. Sure. Thailand. You went to Thailand. I did, yeah. And the Buddhist temples there reminded me the first time I went there, President Bush was having some, you Yeah, know, you know how this goes. You cover the white, you just, you go. I don't know right. what it was. We were there for three days. We, but we took a trip. A guide took us on one of the canals Man. in Bangkok down to uh, this Buddhist temple. And we're looking at this thing, walk around, it's huge. And most of the figurines, there's some, they're having sex is what they're doing. <laughs> and the guides, and we're all kind of looking at it. And the guide sort of sees us. He goes, the temples where you have don't. Don't have this world. <laughs> I said, well, I don't know. The churches and synagogues sure do <laughs> The cathedrals don't. He says, yes, yes, America. Yeah, mostly Christians and Jews. Some Muslims. I said, yeah, Muslims, Christians, and mm-hmm. Jews. He goes, the children of Abraham. <laughs> what a quarrelsome family. <laughs> and I realized. It's it very me. true. Well, and it hit me. in this book, your book, reminded me of it. Why we need to get outside our bubbles. Why oh, we need to
0: get yeah, outside the For sure.
1: You learn things just by seeing them just Mm -hmm. by being there yeah and so my question because that was a long that's great wind up up. he's not like w bush used to (laughs) cut me off my question (laughs) canon you have a question (laughs) (laughs) so you went to hanoi and you went to the hanoi hilton you and i both knew john mccain well Mm -hmm. yeah what did you learn about mccain what did you feel about mccain from being there that you didn't get here so
2: i had long admired john mccain and when he ran for president in 2000 that was a very inspiring campaign because I thought it was. You know, we had come out of just this sort of drama of Gingrich versus Clinton, and you started to see the hyper-partisanship really starting. And McCain came in and said, "Listen, you know, straight talk, express, pay down the debt, strengthen our military." So it was one of these campaigns. As a young kid, I was like, "Hey, this is this guy's sort of speaking to being rational." And I developed a friendship with him, and I covered him on Capitol Hill. He had a good nickname uh, for Yeah, Skywalker. which was very (laughs) funny. And he was hilarious. And all the stories about him, you know, the dirty jokes and the comments, they're they're all true. And they're so – he really was a a genuinely nice guy. And I think that he was someone who – he cared. You know, he really cared about the country. He cared about making friendships across the aisle. And he cared about America's role in, in world affairs. So, I'd always admired him. And I was always struck by how he was offered to leave because of who his dad was. And he said, no, I will leave in the order of which His father I came was here. A, an admiral. An admiral yeah. in Vietnam. So, I'd always... Wanted to see the Hanoi Hilton. I also grew up with boomer parents where Vietnam was very much its focus of the conversation, the dinner table. Everything would trace back to Vietnam in some capacity whether with LBJ or Nixon, etc. So I was always fascinated with the country. So I went there sort of expecting them to be maybe apprehensive of Americans or dismissive of Americans. They're so kind, so nice, so welcoming. But you go to the Hanoi Hilton and you see the degree to which that cell was so decrepit, so dark. So just incredibly scary. And you think about McCain being there for all those years, just the torture and getting beaten. My admiration for him grew enormously. But I was also left with just this incredible sense of gratitude for how he was one of the leaders, along with Senator Kerry, about normalizing relations, right? And you see that gratitude had really, I think, rubbed off on the local population there. They have a monument to him and they all were thankful. So you see, you know, here's a guy who had every right to be angry about what happened to him. And here you have a people that could you could totally understand why they would be angry about what happened to him. But as the years go by, they go, you know what? That doesn't get us anywhere. What gets us anywhere is normalizing relations. And you see where we are now. Who would have thought in 1968, 1969 that Vietnam's important ally against China? So it's, it's really amazing how the world turned.
1: Well, I never heard McCain put it strictly in Christian terms. But I did think of that while I was reading your book, Luke, because it's forgiveness, could, yeah. yeah, because there's the a power of forgiveness element for sure. to your book, mm-hmm. and that's what McCain had to do. He, he had to did. forgive
2: these people. It's not easy. Yeah, it's certainly not easy. And when he passed away, they did a big thing about the guard who was there. Did this whole thing in right. Vietnamese about he was the most honorable man we ever had, and everything. So easy they, for you to say, yeah, now, right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll keep going, Josh. If you want, we were in Vietnam with Thailand. Baseball in Japan.
2: Oh wow, well, yeah. Luke. So baseball in Japan was an interesting one. I, I had been fascinated in college, I was a history major, and I specialized in US foreign policy, World War II, and beyond. And one of the questions that a professor had brought up was and which is now because of Oppenheim gotten a lot of traction. Is, oh, Oppenheimer, yeah, should Oppenheimer, we had yeah. should we have dropped the bomb, right? And Oppenheimer, yeah. And it was a question that I always sort of struggled with because Eisenhower opposed dropping the bomb. Truman was for it. And I'd always wanted to see Hiroshima. And I went there and it, it is really heavy. I mean, you see the degree to which the atomic bomb just annihilated an entire people and and how it's a generational transformation for many, many years. But there is a baseball team there called the Hiroshima Carp. And they're kind of the lovable losers of the league, if you will. They've had some recent success. And so I do this very heavy day and I go and I'm going back and forth about, well, you know, I, I, the bomb was something which we can go through on. You know, my dad worked for Senator Moynihan for some years. Senator Moynihan would say the bomb saved my life. Right? Other people said it never should happen. I think we can debate that to the end of time. But. I go to this baseball game, and there you see these incredible fans. The Japanese baseball fans are engaged the entire game. They're so clean, there's no garbage anywhere on the concourse or anywhere in the (laughs) seats. They come and give you these wonderful... Chicken teriyaki, sushi and beer trays. Everything was fantastic. (laughs) And you look there and you hear the crack of the bat and you see the smiling kid. You know, again, this power of forgiveness, but also sort of the power of the United States to say, you know, we did something and we're going to help rebuild you. And it was just a wonderful American moment for me because here's another group of people that you would say, they're totally in their right to be upset. But instead, they're incredibly welcoming. And, well, here's our national pastime being played. It was really powerful. It really was.
0: There there are parts of this book, I would add, to what Carl's just described, that are personal and mm-hmm. about your story. But there are parts of this book that are also tantalizing and make you want to go, like make yeah. you want to
1: travel again.
0: Yeah. Not, oh, I've already been...
1: booked a trip to Patagonia.
0: Oh, <laughs> yeah. This is a little bit of a self-interested question. You know, Carl is a legend when it comes to many things, but also faith angle. He was close friends with Mike Cromerty, who died in 2017 of cancer. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like the board chair, a little bit, honorary title, elder statesman, (laughs) not too elder, but just a statesman, you know. So he's the the mayor of
1: a very small town.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But there's something about what we try to do in getting journalists together, which is usually to go to the sea, to be away. And you had some description of a glacier going into a teal sea oh, at one point yeah. in the book, you know. Right. And Patagonia. It, it, yeah, Calafate, yeah. So, so I wonder what you think about how we do in general as a culture. We're busy people, busy cities, especially the professional journalism yeah. at not getting away. What is the place of retreat, of getting away, of travel? We can't do three-year trips, no. three-and-a-half-year trips. But can and should we, in right place, get away a little more than we do? How do you see it?
2: One of the things that's so fascinating, if you look at the Abrahamic religions, and if you look at Buddhism and Hinduism, is one of the central themes in all of them is this appreciation of the natural world, this God or whatever spirit you believe in has provided, right? And there's a direct correlation between the power of the natural world, the beauty of the natural world, and how it rejuvenates. And You see that, right? And if you look in the gospel, Jesus, fisher of men on the Sea of Galilee by the water, right? High on the Mount, right? It's all these places that do carry a lot of beautiful nature to them. So one of the things I always say is I totally recognize the privilege of travel, but there's so much beauty to be had no matter where you are. But the secret is that I don't think God would want you to experience the beauty attached to the smartphone. There is a way to experience the beauty where you put the phone away and then you become one within your own thoughts. And you can go for a walk in the woods. That's as simple as that. No matter where you are, you know, hey, we're in Washington, D.C., go for a walk through Rock Creek Park without your phone. Get away from the traffic a little bit and just sort of sit there and contemplate. You know, there is a reason why there was a Sabbath, right? It was originally supposed to be a real decompression. I was watching this program about the blue zones, it's called. I don't know if you've seen it, but essentially it's this gentleman, it's on Netflix and he goes and studies these cultures where people live into their hundreds. And the only one in the United States is a seven-day Adventist community out in California. And one of the things that is central to why they have this longevity is they do take the Sabbath very seriously. They do not work They engage in physical activity or they go on nature walks, et cetera. So you see the power of that. And for me, it wasn't until I was able to get into nature and decompress that I started to finally do a diagnostic check on myself and explore these thoughts that I had been uncomfortable before. I became more comfortable in uncertainty. So that's things like grief. That's things like inadequacy, which it's a lot easier to store and ignore, especially for young men, and push away. But when you start to open yourself up, there's a lot of self-healing the involved. But I think a catalyst for that certainly is being one with nature and being away from the grind, the hamster wheel, whatever you want to call it. A lot of it, it's digital. You know, I think one of the saddest things is that the smartphones and the things that are digital, they give this impression like you have to do something or there's this pressure to perform. And I laugh so hard because now you see, especially when it's like Gen Z, Gen Z will be like, I did something radical. I went through a walk in the woods without a phone. I'm like everyone should try it. Let me blog about it. Let me TikTok about it. You're like, "Guess it was pretty normal. Or like, you know, my mom said that I have to wait to be picked up because, you know, she's got other things going on. And I was like, okay, when I was growing up, my mom picking me up was like fourth on the list after it's the dry Yeah. Yeah. It's Thursday. like, you know, it's like, of you, independence. So, I think to go full circle, it's important to find those moments in nature, whether it's a walk in the woods or it's just time in your own home, even in a quiet place, but you're unplugged. And you're not afraid to sit in those thoughts. And I think one of the ways I was able to to sort of learn how to do that was really through prayer, because that was the first time I was ever exposed to that. And when you're in that church pew and it's quiet and you can sort of think, that's a great sort of start. But it doesn't have to be there. It could be anywhere. Funny story I'll tell you quickly is – Boehner, Speaker Boehner, who's in the book, he used to tell me he would sit after his morning walks at you know St. Peter's Church in Capitol Hill, and he said that's where he would do his best thinking. He would just sort of sit there and, and meditate. I said, oh, that's funny. I said, not with the cigarettes? He said, well, the cigarettes on the walk to and from, too. <laughs>
0: you know,
1: uh, we've had at Faith Angle Forum, we had Professor Gene Twenge from San Diego State who's written about this extensively, Luke, and all of the things that we see, the mental health challenges of Mm -hmm. Gen Z. She makes a pretty compelling case that all these bad things that are going on in the mental health of young people, they date like literally to the year the iPhone is introduced. And one of her theories is that your home used to be a sanctuary Mm -hmm. from bullying, from peer pressure, from self-doubt. You'd go home to your room, you'd play your Beach Boys record. (laughs) Your mom would make you a sandwich or your dad would come home, play catch with you. And, yeah. and that there was a rhythm to that, but you can't escape it now. Yeah. These kids, it's ever present. So your point is, I think that's right. It's hard to unplug though. You it know is. this as well. There's we're going no to do this 50 yeah. minutes. I'm going to get half a dozen all emails right. and people saying think, what's going There was you a time, you'd today. have to be involved
2: all the time. That's right.
1: That's what I say to people. I had a college roommate. who was much older than me. I rented a room, the house of a Christian science practitioner, an old lady. And we had this small garret. a month. That's how tiny it was. And shared his room. This guy was like a monk. He was an aesthetic, but he invited me one year to come visit him. He was from Hamlet, North Carolina, which is Tom Wicker's hometown. Hmm. And this is the seventies. And we went there and it's a Sunday and there was something about it that was off to me. And what it was, it was perfectly quiet. Nobody was doing anything. And somebody started up a lawnmower (laughs) and the people in the house what are you doing? One of the one of the what? And the guy said, "Well, yeah, that's our fault because they they kept the Sabbath. They didn't work on Sunday. Wow. They didn't do anything. They went to church. They they met family. Yeah. They'd get around and talk. Some people would watch baseball. Some sure. people wouldn't. And these people, they they watch football and baseball on Sundays. But he he told me, well, that's our fault.' That guy drives a truck. His father drove a truck, and then he took over the business. And Sundays really is the day he has to cut the lawn." But his father had a push mower. Oh, and he went and when, with the and when,
0: yes. and yeah, when, yeah.
1: When lawnmowers <laughs> came in, power lawnmowers, we don't want to sound like we're so old fashioned, we've been power lawnmowers. So, so this one guy got a pass in this small town. But I was charmed by it. And yeah. when I grew up in Northern California. I'd, it was kind of unfamiliar to me. For sure. But, but it was wonderful.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It is. It is. It is. And there's a value in that sort of way to winding down and just sort of taking a moment for yourself. And that's one of the central themes of the book, I think that. There's all this societal pressure as well, especially on young people. You know, you have to graduate, get the job, and get married, and boom, 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 boom. And at some point, sort of say, okay, when you hit the hit, hit a pause button here, and you know, what is this all about? Where do I fit in here? Uh, well, you did, you got, yeah. and
1: you got off the hamster wheel for, yeah. what, two and a half, three years? Yeah. At some point, you're going to get back on it. I'm actually amplifying what you've already been saying, but when you get back in the game, in journalism or whatever profession you choose or whatever you're going to do, these lessons, I assume you're going to incorporate them and be, and be a little, be healthier oh, yeah. for one thing. I don't mean to sound like your doctor, but. No, no. you know, Absolutely. And do, yeah. and, you know, incorporate this new understanding into your, the next phase of your career. Yeah. I, yeah. Am I. No, am you're right. I enjoy it. No, no,
2: absolutely not. Okay. One of the things that the book really taught me that was very instructive is coming up in TV, very fast paced. Right? right. And a lot of the time you don't, have the ability to do that sort of long form reasoning and come up with exactly what it is you want to say so much of it's on the fly. And what I realize is that I'm much better when I'm able to compose my thoughts and much deeper. Now, one of the things I think in TV is there, there is an element of acting and you have to do that, right? It's sort of dance for your dollars, perform, get it out really quickly, et cetera. But behind that, what are you really about? What are you trying to say? In the written word, there's more force behind it, especially when you take the time and think about it. So I think for me, that was a really illuminating lesson is that I can get my points across and I can really help more people and affect more people through writing or sort of long form things and not in the sort of snappy boom, 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 boom. well you certainly out know, So well that's, enough that's to what be... I think I'm going in that direction okay. for you know whatever it is next. I like the storytelling angle so well, I think you're good at there. It. Thank you.
0: Totally agree Thank and, you. and it's slightly shifting gears but if any of our listeners are on the other side of experiencing some kind of grief, oh, uh, sure it's tricky, right And what are the stages? there's shock, there's denial anger, bargaining, depression,
1: Are acceptance, those still, Is that
0: still the current thing? Nah, that's what she says. <laughs> Josh, that's what I Cooper know. says. Anyway, <laughs> but is there any wisdom about how to navigate that? If they don't necessarily go in order, if they flash back, if you have sort no. of inclinations there, how, how so, do you navigate
2: grief? I'll sort of give a long answer to this because I think it really came out for me with the book. And when I wrote the book, I realized that I was doing two things. I was simultaneously looking for something, and that was who I was independent of my last name, independent of my mom and dad and my hometown. But I was also running away from something over this course of the journey that I had taken, and that was grief that I had never really sat in it because if I sat in it, it meant that dad was really gone Or it made me have to face some very uncomfortable truths, reliving those moments. And maybe I wasn't necessarily proud or happy of every decision that happened in that time. Or I was still grappling with things that had occurred. And once I realized that in the process of writing, it was very cathartic because I was able to go through and explore and say, okay, this happened. It's not going to change. But you now have this luxury of time, this luxury of this moment to really live in it, sit in it, and not be afraid of it. And that's really the most important thing is I think, you know, one of the cliches that's out there is you may never move. You you may never get over it, but you can move forward, right? You may never move on, but you can move forward. And that's what I was looking for. I think that's true. I think I came to that myself. One of the things that's difficult is... It's so much easier to stay in that space of, yeah, something bad happened. I don't think about it. You know, move on. But that manifests itself in so many ways, which you might not realize, whether it's certain anxieties, whether it's certain things that hold you back in life, because it comes in a form of, oh, gosh, if I make this decision, then something bad's going to happen. Or I have this feeling and, and I'm going to end up like dad or, oh, I have this feeling and, I just don't have the energy or the drive because I'm still distraught, right? And I think for many years, I didn't realize where that was coming from. And it wasn't until I sat in it and processed it that I go, okay, I got to get to a place of, of peace. And when I write in the book, I started writing, and then I had this voice in my head that said, you have to go to the Holy Land, and it's the big finale, so I won't give the total spoiler alert that happens at the tomb of Christ and then at the Wailing Wall, but Ostensibly, I come to this conclusion, which is rather simplistic, but it's deeply meaningful, which is when you think of the people who have passed on, who you miss, and you think about the ability to have a conversation with them, would they want you to be sad when they're brought up? Would they want you to be completely debilitated when they're mentioned and the answer is no it took a long time to get there and it, and it's not easy because i think there's moments of grief there's just immense sadness and you have this thing am i doing enough am i honoring them enough am i living the way they would want me to live but you get to a point where you say you know what the last thing they would want me is to be so tied down that i couldn't even live my own life and i got to that point and it's a wonderful place of peace miss my dad i love my dad wish he was here but when he comes up, I smile. It's not a source of sadness. It's just, it's really a source of strength.
1: Yeah. Well, we're we're talking with that's Luke Russert. The book is "Look for Me There: Grieving My Father, Finding Myself." I'm Carl Cannon. This is my co-host. I get. Can I make myself ghost?
0: Wait, man. It's <laughs> Josh Good, who runs Faith
1: Angle Forum. Luke, this book is, you really laid out well and you go to these places and you, there's these adventures and these insights and some of them we haven't mentioned, you know, you bribed your way into oblivion, <laughs> dodged a coup in Zimbabwe, but the Holy Land seems like where it was going to end. It's it now. Yeah. Maybe I knew that because Josh
2: invited me to do a podcast <laughs> with you and Josh and I talk about these issues,
1: but, but it seemed like a magnet. Like that's where you had to go. It, not-
2: it's, it's remarkable because I had traveled the entire world and I started to write this book, but. I had not gone to the Middle East. And I hadn't gone to the Holy Land. And it was nagging at me. And I write in the book, I was on a walk in San Francisco where I was writing, and there's one of those little free libraries. And I see this book that's about how to travel in the Middle East, and I'm sort of drawn to it. And I open up a little free library, and I take it out. And then I look up, and I see Tim Russert. And someone had left a copy of Big Russ and me in there, too. And I go, okay, well, that's that's the side. Yeah, you know, gotta, you got to go on that. And – I encourage everybody to go to the Holy Land if they have an opportunity, God willing. Sometimes it's hard like it is right now, but I think it all evens out. But when you go there, there is a reason why these three religions (laughs) are born from it. And you feel that immense power. And I think for me, it always more so than anything, it's an incredible place for self-awareness you realize just sort of how small you are and how big faith is and i just gravitated towards that the other component of it is for a kid who you know grew up going to ccd after mass on sundays all the story suddenly became alive. <laughs> oh, there's the Mount of Temptation. <laughs> Here's Calvary Hill, right? Here's where Christ walked in. Simon grabbed the cross, right? So you have all those things come to life, which is incredible. But when I went there, I was seeking some sort of affirmation, some sort of clarity, and I was thankful it came. And it came through deep prayer and meditation. So I won't give the whole spoiler out there, but I will say if you have an opportunity Everyone should go at least once in their life. I mean, it really is a place of deep reflection where you know, I've met people since the book has come out. They go, you know, I wasn't really really that religious, but I ended up there for some trip or whatever, and I was blown away. And I was like, yeah, it's just it's impossible to go through all of it and not to have a little bit rub off on you. You know,
1: I read this book, Josh, look for me there as this is unfolding in Israel this horrible attack against Israel. But, you know, you take a step back at the way Luke's talking now, the Muslims aren't going anywhere. The Jews have been there for three or four thousand years and there's 10 million of them. It's the holy land for Christians, the three of us. It's our tradition. I mean, these three religions and these three people have got to figure out a way to get along well enough that we can all go there and have it be the holy land, that it's the holy land for three religions. Muslims also have Mecca and Medina and other places, but Very important place to Muslims. We've got to be able to figure this out.
2: We do, and we've got to preserve that place. One of the things that I write about was going to Hebron in the West Bank, and that's a place which is, I think, the second holiest site in Judaism, and it's one of the holiest sites in Islam. And there is a mosque and a temple right next to each other, and they're literally separated by a blast wall. And I write about seeing, you know, this is here is the tomb of Abraham. Right, so here's Abraham down here, two religions that are born from him. Right, separated by this blast ball. Come on, right? We got to figure this out. Right? There's got to be a way. There's got to be a way. And I think one of the things which you see in the Holy Land is it pulls back the hyperbole. Right? It's literally like, okay, here's the tomb of the elders, so important in Judaism, so important in Islam. Come on. Right? It's like here, here we literally are. We're praying at the same place to literally the same person, same deity. Right. What's the problem? And yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Well, surely journalists
0: are not protagonists in that story. They're not the key actors, right? But there's something about appreciating the richness of different traditions that are in play and that are present
2: in the land. For sure. And I would even you know, extending out to the other faiths as well is one of the things I write in the book. That old adage of we're all trying to get to the same place. We just take a different road to get there. and it's very true. It's very, very true. And most people see that and they respect others. It's just, unfortunately, things get caught up in new extremism and you see what happens and it's, it's terrible. But I think most people, most people of true faith are pretty welcoming. Hopefully religious diversity is a strength. You're right. Mm -hmm. Well,
0: friends, thanks for coming over. Thanks for coming by. It's nice to do this in person. Appreciate this very much. Luke Russert, Carl Cannon. Faith Angle connects leading journalists from all walks of life to consider how religion impacts public life and us. Thanks for listening.